Let's turn now to um, his word now in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking, rather, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 19. Persevering to the end. So those of you who are in Sunday school will hear uh, many of the same themes and hopefully be an encouragement to you as we reconsider again, once again this morning, this, this theme of perseverance or the preservation of God's saints. Let's pick up now reading in chapter 3, verse 7. The writer, the preacher to the Hebrews has just told us, if we hold fast to him, we hold fast to our confidence, we will be brought home to our Lord Jesus Christ in all of its fullness to the very end. And now he picks up in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, notice it's in the present tense, not in the past tense. The Spirit is speaking when? Presently. He's present. Where's the Holy Spirit speaking? He's speaking right here, right now, this moment. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, take care watch out, take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you, plural, y'all, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, or daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we, pastoral inclusive here, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he, that is God, swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient... So we see, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Thus far, the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we come before this holy word, before you, whose eyes are too holy to look upon iniquity. We ask that you would come and be our Ebenezer once again this day. Be our stone of help. Bless these poor efforts of mine. Bless the meditation of our heart and the words of my lips. That Jesus Christ would be made much of. That we would consider him the one who is superior to the angels. The one who is superior to Moses. 
your final word, in whom in these last days you've spoken to us, our Creator, our Redeemer, the Builder, and the Son over your household. We pray in His holy name. Amen. By way of reminder, the preacher is writing to remind suffering Christians that Christ is better. He's better than all that God has revealed in the Old Covenant. He's better than all the types and shadows who came before Him. And there is no turning back now that we've embraced Jesus Christ, now that we're following Him. In Hebrews 1, rather Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, the author has showed the superiority over Moses, that Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but the Son of God is that. He is a son. He is the builder and son in God's house. And we must not forsake him, lest we lose our assurance before God. Rather, we must hold fast to Christ in hope. And the author now, by drawing out a warning from Psalm 95 in verses 7 to 19, from the days of Moses concerning the failure of Israel to enter God's rest, this land of promise, all because of their unbelief. But before we dig right into the text, and after giving that little bit of context, let me remind us that the warnings, because this passage is a warning passage, that the warnings in Hebrews do not contradict the gospel, but rather serve the gospel by calling true believers to a greater obedience, to a deeper commitment, right? These warnings are not given to disturb faith, that is, saving faith, but rather to strengthen and mature our faith, to to grow us up in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I'm ever so aware that many in our congregation are the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks. And I I don't want to crush the the bruised reed nor put out the smoldering wick. And yet at the same time, this same word that convicts the proud right, and humbles the proud, lifts the lowly. I I want to challenge us and challenge our ambivalence, right, our indifference, to challenge our lukewarmness, if you will, in our pursuit of God. That we must be hot after God, right? We are those who forget what is behind, pressing forward to what is before us, which is heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ and the great crown that he will reward us on that last day. So to challenge but not crush. So I want you to pray, even now as I'm preaching, that I would challenge you without crushing you. To challenge but not crush. Right? That we might be more and more like him, conform more and more into his image. Before we jump into the text, I want to do just a little bit of of a history lesson, a family history lesson, if you will, looking at the nation of Israel. Now, we remember the nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt. They were physically enslaved to the Egyptians, and they began to cry out in their misery there in Exodus 2. We're told there that God heard, God saw, and God knew his people. He knew them in their misery. He heard their cries. And we're told that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, and he used Moses and the incredible miracles in the form of ten plagues to bring about Israel's salvation out of Egypt, out of bondage. 
And the most important of all, God provided a, a sacrificial lamb, right? A lamb without spot, without blemish, whose blood was applied to the doorpost of all the houses of Israel. And when God saw the blood on the doorpost, on the threshold of the door, God would pass over that house, and, and judgment would not fall on that house that was covered in the blood of the lamb. And so Israel and her sins were forgiven, and she was delivered out of Egypt. And having led his people into the wilderness, God had them pass through the Red Sea upon dry ground. But we remember what happened to the Egyptians. They did not pass through the waters. They were drowned by the waters. And those dead bodies of the Egyptians were floating there on the sea, the Red Sea, for all to see the judgment of God empirically right before their eyes. We're also told that when Israel came to the mountain of God, God there gave the law. He gave them His ten words. And while they wandered in the wilderness, God provided with, for them manna, manna from heaven. And He also provided water, water from the rock. And all of this, as they journeyed to the land God had promised to their fathers. Now these are just the basic facts. What I want us to remember here is that all of this was according to the New Testament, a, a type, now listen, it was a type, it was a foreshadowing of another exodus that God was going to bring about. The exodus accomplished, not by Moses, but by one greater than Moses, another prophet that God was going to raise up who was going to bring about a great deliverance. And that is the deliverance that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has purchased and secured for us through His person and work. Jesus even refers to His death there in Jerusalem when He will be rejected of men and suffer many things as a departure. It's the same word used in the Greek Old Testament for exodus. He, he's brought a new exodus, an exodus by his blood. And that just as Israel was in physical bondage there in Egypt, so we in Adam are in spiritual bondage. We're dead in sins and trespasses. And apart from Christ, we're without hope. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Christ our Passover lamb, Paul tells us, who was slain for us. You see, he's the true manna who's from heaven, right? John chapter 6. It's my Father who gives the true manna. I am that true manna. I am that rock which Moses struck and the water poured forth. I am, Jesus says. And the land of Canaan to which Israel journeyed to obtain the physical rest was itself a type pointing to the spiritual rest that now through faith in Christ we will receive and will experience in a consummated form, right? We experience it now, right? Come unto me, ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. But we haven't had the full measure, the consummative measure that God has for us for this rest that yet remains for the people of God. You see, we're moving toward this eschatological. That's a big fancy word. It just means last days, last times, the rest of the new heavens and new earth. 
You see, he's holding it out for us as that great reward, that great prize that we're to keep our eyes on him. As Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, he's the Lord of this great rest. It is through his person and work he secured this great rest. As we'll see next week, it's this rest that we learn about in Genesis chapter 2. That God, after creating all things in the space of six days, entered into his what? His rest. Right? So we're held out this rest to enter into, to, to persevere to. To work out, even as God works to will within us, that we might enter this rest. We're to consider Him, we're to hold fast to Him, even as He holds fast to us. Do you see all of this, as we'll see in the coming days and even this morning? But you might be asking yourself, now why have I taken the time to remind us of Israel's history? Beloved, the writer to the Hebrews wants us to draw out the comparison between the experience of Israel's physical bondage and exodus out of Egypt to the church's exodus out of spiritual bondage to sin. He wants us to understand the parallel he's trying to make with ancient Israel and these New Testament Christians who are in danger of forsaking Christ and going back to Moses and placing themselves once again under the Torah, under the Mosaic Covenant, right? Because they're being persecuted. They're suffering. They're having their property confiscated. Now, they haven't yet shed blood, but potentially that's before them. They could be suffering martyrdom for their faith, persecution, tribulation, And he reminds them, you can't go back. To go back is to forsake God, to to forsake this great high priest, this great apostle who's gone before us, this great captain of our salvation who secured this great salvation. You can't go back. I know it's difficult, but we press on in him. We consider him. We fix our eyes on him who is the author and finisher of our faith. You see, this is what he's doing. He's giving this brief word of exhortation. He even calls the sermon, the epistle, a brief word. Thirteen chapters, a brief word of exhortation. That's why we believe it to be a sermon. That's why oftentimes you'll hear me say it's a sermonic epistle. He's encouraging them to persevere in Jesus Christ, to not turn back. You see, he wants us to understand, and he doesn't want these professing Christians to make the same mistake that Israel made in the wilderness. In verses 7 to 11, notice what he does. He quotes Psalm 95 to make his point. While Exodus 17 could be in his mind, I believe the primary background here is Numbers 14, where having heard the report Israel had, of the spies who were dispatched to go into the promised land that Wes read from Numbers 14, they refused to believe God. They put God's word to the test. Hath God said? You see? They began to question in their hearts. And their doubts started to make manifest themselves through their complaining and murmuring. Well, I don't like the way this Moses, who's this Moses guy anyway? 
I could do a better job. All right. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, notice he's taken a word written thousands of years before this very word here in Hebrews, and he says, says. Again, it's in the present tense. God is speaking right now to you through his word. The Holy Spirit is saying to you as you sit there in that pew, today, not tomorrow, not yesterday, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers, whose fathers? Our fathers. Put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. You see, it was in this context of unbelief that the living God swore. Now think about that. There's only one other place God swore. When he made his covenant with Abraham, he swore. Abraham, let it be unto me as it is unto these animals if I don't fulfill my word to you. So when God swears, we need to sit up straight. We need to lock in. We need to pay attention. We need to be on point. God swears, you're not going to enter my rest. He swears this. God says about that generation there in Numbers 14, verse 10, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now we need to stop and we need to do some inventory right there, don't we? I ask you, had Israel not seen the countless miracles in Egypt? Had they not stood on the banks of the Red Sea? Church, had they not received the manna from heaven? Had they not, when they cried for meat, God gave them meat and quail fall? Had they not drank the living water from the rock? Had they not watched the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night? And yet when times got tough, when there's a little heat in the kitchen, and God begins to test them. You see, he lets them go the circuitous route to get to the promised land. Why? He tells us. Now listen. He tells us that he might test the hearts of his people. He's going to test your faith. Because your faith is more precious than gold. Refined by fire. He's going to test it. And you're going to find out through that testing whether your faith is authentic or not. Whether it's the real McCoy or whether it's a spurious faith. Or the faith of demons. Do you think you have a better theology than Satan himself? I'm afraid not. Faith will be tested. It'll be proved. It'll be shown to be genuine or, or not. 
You see, as God tested their faith, the, the difficulties increased. They, they rebelled and they began to grumble and complain. And all beneath this complaining was an unbelieving heart, right? Because out of their mouth, what comes? You want to know what's in my heart? You want to know that? You listen long enough to me. Not, not on Sunday morning. Come over to my house when one of my kids doesn't do what they're supposed to do. Ride with me to Northern Virginia. Around the Beltway. And you'll hear my heart. Out of the mouth, what? The heart speaks. Did you hear that when Mr. Jones read it? They began to complain and murmur. Right? That's what happens. As the deceitfulness of sin. Right? The, the mystery of iniquity cast its spell on you, a little charm, promises you life but brings you gravel in your mouth and in your gut. It never delivers anything but death. And we're told that as a result of their unbelief, they were not able to enter God's rest. Now get this, all but two of that generation perished in the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua. Notice what the author's doing. He's taking this warning written to ancient Israel in the Old Covenant, Psalm 95, and he's applying it to the church to which he is writing. Had the church there to which the writer to the Hebrews is writing, had they not witnessed miracles? They've told us as much. They've seen the witness of the apostles. Perhaps they've been baptized. Perhaps they faithfully attended under the means of grace. Maybe they've partaken of the Lord's Supper. They had heard of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet some of them, there in the congregation, were in danger of forsaking Christ. Some of these folk are like that rocky soil in Mark 4. Those who initially received the word with joy. But with a little persecution, as it intensifies, things are becoming a little more difficult. They're in danger of hardening their hearts. They're, they're in danger of turning away. You see, they gave an outward appearance of being saved. And so long as the miracles continued and the skies were clear and the seas were calm, everything's okay. But when the difficulties come, when they came, when they were rejected by friends, young people, opposition at work, when they were being canceled because they're not willing to drink the world's Kool-Aid, the true state of their souls was in danger of being exposed. And with this illustration of Israel's failing to enter Canaan ringing in their ears, notice how the preacher drives home the application. Verse 12, we come to the first imperative. Notice what he says here. Take care. Watch out. Take heed. Beware. Is he writing to unbelievers? No. He's writing to the visible church. 
Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This verb, to, to fall away, is the word in Greek, apostani, from which we get our word what? Apostasy. Apostasy happens. How many of us this morning, as we're sitting there and you're listening to me expound the word, know of friends, acquaintances, people who began well, but they're not here this morning? They're not in any church this morning. They just drifted away. They were enamored by the world, like Demas, who, Paul says, for the love of the world has departed from me and has departed from the faith. Oh, but Demas, he was such a strong believer. He made the good confession of faith. Yes. But is he believing today? You see, today is the word for the church. That's all you have is today. Oh, I walked an aisle back in 1983. Okay, great. Are you believing today? I went through a confirmation class. Pastor Bullock, you taught it. I sat through it. Mr. Hutton did a wonderful job in the new new members class back in 2017. Where are they today? Today is the day of salvation. Today, don't harden your hearts as the the Spirit comes and addresses you in the Word. And did you notice, as I mentioned in my reading, that the pastor includes himself, right? He's not immune, right? (laughs) Am I listening? Pastor Bullock, today is the day. Are you believing today, Pastor Bullock? Beloved, to have an unbelieving heart is to have an apostatizing heart, one that rebels against God, one that's raised the the fist, the high hand, the sin of the high hand against God, right? Well, what leads to apostasy? We're told here, very simply, an unbelieving heart. Palmer Robertson says this, a, a hardening of the heart by the people of the new covenant will have as as devastating an effect on God's people today as it did for the original generation. Watch out. Take heed. Beware that you do not have an unbelieving heart. Well, you're saying, well, you know, I, I've already accepted Christ. I, I believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It's an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all my sins and accepts me as righteous in his sight solely for the righteousness of Christ. I've got the doctrine down. I've memorized it. Are you believing today? Are you lukewarm? Have you abandoned your first love? Does he thrill your heart? You men know what I'm talking about when you saw that beautiful woman God gave you. If you're married, she thrilled your heart. You were consumed with her. All your waking hours were thought about her. That's what God's calling us to. The love of Christ would constrain me. Oh, to know Christ. Oh, to know Him. 
Oh, isn't it a shame, church, that we only have one life to live for Him? Oh, to have 10,000 tongues. Oh, to have 10,000 lives. Oh, pastor, you're so radical. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I'm biblical. What saith the word? What is the Holy Spirit saying today to the church? Wake up. Stir up. Fan into flame the gift that was given to you, Timothy, by the laying on of hands. You've grown lethargic, tepid, lukewarm. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You see? Sin deceives, it hardens, and left unchecked, it can leave us in utter darkness. And this unbelief that's so insidious can take many forms. And one of the most insidious ways is to cling to self-righteousness. As you sit there this morning, do you believe yourself to be better than others? You cannot hold on to the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ simultaneously holding on to your own self-righteousness, believing you're better than others. They're antithetical. They're oil and water. They cannot be mixed. You can't go into the temple like the Pharisee does in Luke 18. Lord, thank you I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast two times a week and give a tenth of all I have. I'm a ruling elder in the PCA. Who cares? Where's your righteousness? What are you holding fast to? What are you clinging to? Like a drowning man thirsting for oxygen. That's what God's calling us to, church. To be white hot. For Jesus Christ. The days are short. The night soon cometh, saith the Son of Man, when no one will work. Beloved, self-righteousness must die if we're going to live upon the righteousness of Christ. Again, Palmer Robinson the believer who answers the today of the Holy Spirit with a tomorrow of some more convenient season knows not, not how he or she is hardening their heart. The delay, instead of making the surrender and obedience of faith easy, makes it more difficult. It closes the heart for today against the comforter and, counts and cuts off all hope and power of growth. Do you want to grow? Are you satisfied with where you are? Then harden your heart. You see, today is God's word. Tomorrow belongs to the devil. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. Notice what it says there. What does he say there, church? We have come to share in Christ what? There's that two-letter word. That two-letter word. What's it say? If... Indeed, we hold fast our original confidence to the end. Again, like we saw back in chapter 3, verse 6. If we hold fast to the end. Saints, perseverance, now listen, perseverance is the fruit of true 
biblical faith. Write it down. Perseverance is the fruit of true biblical faith. Perseverance is not the way to salvation, but rather the way we demonstrate that we are partakers of salvation in Jesus Christ. Those effectually called by God, regenerated and united to Christ, will finish the race. So it's not a question of do you have faith. The question is do you have true biblical saving faith? Right? That's more searching. Is it true faith? Is it just merely intellectual faith? Is it merely just assent to some philosophical and theological propositions? The question I'm asking you is, is your faith, now get this, is your faith fiduciary? What do I mean? Have you abandoned all hope in self, in self-righteousness, and are you looking to Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation? That's what I'm asking you. Well, my dad believes. No. Do you believe? Are you holding fast? Today, are you hearing his voice? Well, I've been a member here for 40 years. Today, are you believing today? Are you working it out today? Are you wrestling today? Are you mortifying the flesh today? Are you putting on Jesus Christ today? Tomorrow belongs to the devil. Today is God's word. Today. Do not harden your heart if you hear his voice. Let me say this, right? Because you're praying for me as I preach. I want to challenge you. Challenge lukewarm faith. But I don't want to crush true biblical faith. The bruised reed, the smoldering wick. Let me say this. All that I'm saying about perseverance and being preserved and and hanging and holding fast to Christ does not mean that believers will never have a lapse. Doesn't mean that. Proverbs 24, 16. Though the righteous fall, now listen, seven times, they will, what, rise again. But the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Why is that? You know why? What does calamity do to false faith? Pulls the curtain back. Exposes it. It's not true faith. It reveals it for what it is. There's no there there. Faith must be tested. Tested through the fire, through through the crucible of, of suffering, of having to pay a little bit of a price. To remain steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord as you're considering Him, as your eyes are fixed on Him, like Stephen as they threw the rocks, believing they were serving God. What is Stephen doing? His, his gaze is upward. 
he takes the rocks to the glory of God. To be counted worthy to suffer for the name. That's the image we should have about true biblical faith. Persevering faith. Think of David. You know, Mr. Hutton did a wonderful job. Excellent, excellent job. I was scared for a moment there. But it was excellent. Excellent. Like good wine, Mr. Hutton. Get better with age. But think about David. Think about David. When men go out to war, David does what? He stays behind in the spring. He's out there on the roof, and he's just gazing out over his kingdom. And lo and behold, there's the lovely, shapely, the Word of God says it. Oh, isn't the Word of God good? Isn't it good, church? It describes how our, how our heart works. It, it, it dissects me. It's living, and it's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. David sees her, and he covets her. He desires to have her. So he calls for her, and she comes. Here's the man whom the Word of God says. Here's the man, the man. God says, this is the man after my own heart who's now committed adultery and his attempt to cover it up rather than to forsake it and repent of it. He murders Uriah. And it just wasn't a matter of just a few weeks. Now you think about this. Now think with me. Nine months passes. He's living in open rebellion. Lord's day after Lord's day. Sabbath day after Sabbath day. For at least nine months till the child arrives. He's lapsed. He's fallen. But he who began the good work in David is what? Faithful. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful. And he brings conviction. He grants repentance to David. He grants him the gift of repentance, the gift of faith. So David's heart is struck when Nathan gives him that little parable about the unrighteous man who takes the little lamb of his neighbor and, right, and sacrifices for his friends, careless. Nathan tells him, David, you're the man. That's mercy. Mercy comes calling. Mercy comes in your sin, in your wickedness, as you're reveling in it, as you're loving it. Mercy comes calling. And mercy captures your imagination. It captures your heart. And it grants you repentance. It grants you faith to turn and make the 180. To pursue God. To love God. So today if you're here and you have just one little inkling, one little... The, the, the size of a mustard seed of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and you want to repent, you, you desire to repent, you, you lament that you only have one life to live for Him. And you're lamenting because you're sinning, and you're, you're caught in sin, you're caught in that, that besetting sin that so easily entangles you. Let me tell you that mercy's coming calling today for you. Mercy is knocking at the door. 
He wants to dine with you. He wants to sup with you. He wants you to know Him. And He wants you to know you. To know yourself. That you might have true wisdom. Right? To know God. To know self. That's true wisdom. Mercy's coming calling. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Some of us this morning need to do business with God. Verses 16 to 18, notice what the author does. He's a preacher. Notice this. He asks questions. Because God's a questioner. Right? He's always asking questions. Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. What does he want Adam to know? He wants Adam to know where Adam is. The preacher wants the congregation to know where the congregation is. I know where you are. You're 3,000 Grove. But notice, rhetorically, based on Psalm 95, he wants to burrow in. He wants to get his fingernails dirty in the hearts of God's people because he loves God's people. He's a pastor. He cares because he doesn't want their blood on his hands. Because God's a holy God. And those who rebel will die in the wilderness, just like those dead bodies there in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. Notice what he does. Who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt with Moses? With whom was the Lord angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and kept on sinning, whose bodies died in the wilderness? And with whom did God swear they would not enter his rest? Was it not with those who were disobedient? Verse 19, notice what he says. We, we see it. I see it. You see it. The people of God, we see it. That they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we ask ourselves, as we conclude this sermon this morning, Has God given the church some provision or provisions, plural, to aid and equip us that we might not fail to enter God's holy rest? That's what you're asking. You've painted the picture, Pastor. You've made the predicament. You've let me see that if I fall away, there's no hope. Is there something to aid me, something to equip me, something to encourage me to persevere when I want to give up, when I want to leave the God I confess and profess to love? Is there help for me? Look right there in verse 13. Right? He told, he's told us to watch out, lest there be in any of you a wicked heart leading to fall away. But notice what he says in verse 13. Church, listen, but exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Beloved, one of the major means God has ordained is the loving, sustained encouragement that you will find in the visible church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you get that? Yes, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. But here, the author of Hebrews tells us that you are the means by which God desires to keep others faithful, and others are the means by which God sustains you in perseverance to endure. 
What's the, what's the assumption? What's the presupposition? That you're here. You got to be here. You got to be in each other's lives. You got to cast your burdens upon each other. You got to seek to know and let others know you. To get their fingernails dirty in your heart, in the things of your heart. You don't have it all together. I'm not okay. You're not okay. You need a Savior, a living Savior, a living God, a God who speaks today, not just who has spoken in the past, but speaks today through His Word. The Holy Spirit says, present tense, He's speaking today. Right? Do you need yesterday's manna? What happened to yesterday's manna? You go out there and you look at it. What's in yesterday's manna? Maggots. Is there anything more gross than maggots? I mean, really? You're going to eat yesterday's manna? No, you need the fresh manna that he gives, the living bread, Jesus Christ every day. And you need to daily speak it into each other's lives. I need you to speak into my life. I'm inviting you to speak into my life. Come and speak to me. You see, God uses the body speaking truth into each other's lives. I have a file in my office. It's called the pastor's file. Sparky, you probably had this. Pastor Sloan, you might have this. When I'm feeling down and depressed, kind of like Elijah running from Jezebel, I'm the only one, I'm the only faithful minister on the earth, right? Throwing my little pity party, which is just another form of self-righteousness. That's all it is. It's not resting in the righteousness, the alien righteousness of Jesus, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. I go to this file, and it's a file that says, like this one. Just a note of encouragement. I'm a covenant child. To press on. To hold fast. My confidence. To not forsake him who will never forsake me. To work it out. To put it to death. To root it out. We do this for each other. It's a powerful way to encourage each other. Words of encouragement. Brother, Brother Jones, I'm so grateful for you. Just, I just wanted to call to say thank you. I'm just so thankful for you. I didn't have any other agenda this morning other than to say thank you. You know how radical that is? You know how radical it is to be a human? Not so preoccupied with self. have Rick correct me when I'm wrong. I don't like it. But I know my brother loves me. You see, your arrival in God's Sabbath rest, the new heavens and earth, is not divorced. Now listen, it's not divorced from means. 
right? It's not just something that happened back, back yonder when you walked the aisle or you became a communicant member. You've begun the race. You're in the middle of the race. The finish line is still before you. God's calling you to press on today, to make today better than yesterday, to be more faithful in 2023 than 2022, to actually grow up in Jesus Christ, to be a mature human. This is exactly, this type of encouragement is exactly what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as is fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The power of life is where? Where is it found? It's in the tongue. Right? The tongue that speaks blessings or curses. How can it be? They're incompatible. How can curses come out of the mouth that's meant for blessing? Or later in Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing nigh. Do you see what he's saying? And let me close with this. He's saying this. Now listen, he's saying this. He's saying that perseverance is a team sport. Write it down. It's a team sport. You know what Satan wants you to do? He wants you out there on your own, isolated, depressed, discouraged, despondent. He doesn't want you here under the means of grace, the bread and wine, the preached word. He wants you out there moping, so introspective, just you can't even see your navel, navel right? I can't at my age. I know there's there. I see it in the mirror. But that's what he wants. He wants you so preoccupied with self. Let me challenge you today. Go out and start speaking words of grace, words of life to that neighbor. To that person who taught you in seminary, I think of my professors often, and I will oftentimes write them notes of encouragement. Thank you, Ralph Davis. Thank you for being a faithful workman of the Word of God. That person who led you to Christ, that mother who prays for you, young person, right? When you're not always pleasing her. Her unchanging love, though, like cords of mercy won't let you go. Like Monica with Augustine. Oh, beloved, today, the today in the new covenant is greater than today of those in Israel. You see, we live on this side of the cross and resurrection. We're going to have more to be accountable to. Do you know this? It's a dangerous thing to, to listen to sermons. They write that down. It's dangerous to be here. It's dangerous to be here and not heed the voice of God. We have a more sure word to which we would do well to pay attention to. So all saints, watch out. Brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And I'll leave you with this. And I've been long today, but you know, this, this means a lot to me. Did you hear in Numbers 14 at the end there when Mr. Jones was reading it? 
the people of God rebelled. God swore they're not going to enter the rest. Right? They get it. They begin to mourn. They mourn greatly, verse 39. But we're told something interesting. Listen to this. Listen. We're told in verse 40, the next morning, many said, we'll go up. But the today had passed. The today had passed. Today belongs to God. Tomorrow is the devil's word. We'll go up. Moses tells them, don't go up. God had already sworn. They're not going to enter the rest. We'll go up. Like Esau, sorrowful, sought his birthright with tears, but it wasn't granted to him. He sold it. He was an animal. We just read it yesterday in our home. He was like a, like a, like a, like a shark with, with chum in the water. He just, ooh, i got to have it. He sold his birthright, and then he sought it with tears. They seek it with tears. Don't go up, for the Lord is not among you. They presumed, and they went up, and the result was they were slaughtered. It's serious stuff, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> this is serious stuff. Today, if you hear his voice as the Spirit speaks, do not harden your heart as our forefathers did in the rebellion. All of us can heed that word. Me being first and chief. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it searches us, it tries us, it seeth there's any wicked way in us, and it leads us in the way of everlasting life. Pray now, you'd bless now the sacrament to us, we pray, as we feed on Christ truly and spiritually, as we fix our eyes on him who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray in his holy name. Amen.